Chapter Two, Part One of the Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator, Chapter Two, Part One, Owsley and the Sixteen O One. His name was Owsley, Jake Owsley, and he was a railroad man before ever he came to Big Cloud and the Hill Division, before ever the Hill Division was even advanced to the blueprint stage before steel had ever spider-webbed the stubborn Rockies, before the Herculean task of bridging a continent was more than a thought in even the most ambitious minds. Owsley was an engineer, and he came from the east, when they broke ground at Big Cloud for a start toward the western goal through the mighty range, a comparatively young man, thirty or thereabouts, then, inch by inch and foot by foot, Owsley, with his ballast cars and his boxes and his flats bumping material behind him, followed the construction gangs as they burrowed and blasted and trestled their way along. Day in, day out, month in, month out, until the years went by. And they were through the Rockies, with the coast and the blue of the Pacific in sight. First over every bridge and culvert, first through every cut, first through every tunnel shorn in the bitter gray rock of the mountain sides, the pilot of Owsley's engine nosed its way, and when the rough of the work was over, and in the hysteria of celebration, the toll of lives, the hardships, and the cost were forgotten for the moment, and the directors and their guests crowded the cab and perched on running boards and footplates till you couldn't see the bunting they draped the engine with, and the mahogany coaches behind looked like the striped sticks of candy the kids buy on account of more bunting, and then some, and uh, the local band they'd brought along from Big Cloud got the mouthpieces of their trombones and cornets mixed up with the necks of champagne bottles, and the Indian braves squatted gravely at different points along the trackside and thought their white brothers had gone mad. Owsley was at the throttle for the first through run over the division. It was Owsley's due. Then other years went by, and the steel was shaken down into the permanent right-of-way that it is an engineering marvel today, and Owsley still held a throttle on a through run, just kept growing a little older, that was all, but one of the best of them for all that, steadier than the younger men, wise in experience, and with a love for his engine that was like the love of a man for a woman. It's a strange thing, perhaps, a love like that, but, strange or not, there was never an engineer worth his salt who hasn't had it, some more than others, of course, as some men's love for a woman is deeper than others.' With Owsley, it came pretty near being the whole thing. And it was queer enough to see him when they'd change his engine to give him a newer and more improved type for a running mate. He'd refuse point-blank at first to be separated from the obsolete engine that was either carted for some local jerk-water, mixed freight run, or for a construction job somewhere. Leave her with me, he'd say to Regan, the master mechanic. Leave me with her. You can give my run to someone else, Regan, do you mind? It, it's little I care for the swell run, me and the old girl sticks. I'll have nothing else. But the bluff, fat, big-hearted, good-natured little master mechanic knew his man, and he knew an engineer when he saw one. 
Regan would no more have thought of letting Owsley get away from the Imperial's throttle than he would have thought of putting call boys in the cabs to run the engines. Hm, he would say, blinking fast at Owsley. Feel that way, do you? Well, then, maybe it's about time you quit altogether. I didn't offer you your choice, did I? Now, you take the Imperial with what I give you to take her with, or take nothing. Think it over. And Owsley, perforce, had to uh, think it over. And, perforce, he stayed on the limited run. Came then the day when changes in engine types were not so frequent, and a fair maximum in machine design efficiency had been obtained and Owsley came to love more than he had ever loved any engine before his big, powerful, 1600-class racer, with its four pairs of massive drivers that took the curves with the grace of a circling bird that laughed in glee at anything lower than a 3% grade and tackled the fives with no more than a grunt of disdain. Owsley and the 1601, right from the start, clipped fifty-five minutes off the running time of the Imperial Limited through the Rockies, where before it had been nip and tuck to make the old schedule anywhere near the dot. For three years it was Owsley in the 1601. For three years, east and west through the mountains, and a smile in the roundhouse at him as he nursed and cuddled and groomed his big flyer in from a run. Not now. They don't smile now about it. It was Owsley and the 1601 for three years, and at the end it was still Owsley and the 1601. The two are coupled together. They never speak of one on the Hill Division without the other. Owsley and the 1601. Owsley. One of the old guard who answered the roll call at the birth of the Hill Division. Forty years a railroader, call boy at ten, twenty years of service counting the construction period on the Hill Division straight and upright as a young sapling at fifty-odd, with a swing through the gangway that the younger men tried to imitate, hair short-cropped, a little grizzled, gray steady eyes, a beard whose color, once brown, was nondescript, kind of shading tawny and gray and streaks, a slim little man, overalled and jumpered with greasy, peaked cap, and wifeless, without kith or kin save his engine, the star boarder at Mrs. McCann's short-order house. Liked by everybody, known by everybody on the division down to the last Polak construction hand. Quiet, no bluster about him, full of good-humored fun, ready to take his part or do his share in anything going, from a lodge minstrel show to sitting up all night and playing trained nurse to anybody that needed one. That was Owsley. Oh, you and your millions who ride in trains by day and night, do you ever give a thought to the men into whose keeping you hand your lives? Does it ever occur to you that they are not just part of the equipment of iron and wood and steel and rolling things to be accepted callously, as bought and paid for with the strip of ticket that you hold, animate only in that you may voice your grumblings and your discontent at some delay that saves you probably from being hurled into eternity, while you chafe impatiently and childishly at something you know nothing about, that they, like you, are human, too, with hopes achieved and aspirations shattered, and plans and interests in life? Have you ever thought that there was a human side to railroading, and that... But 
We were speaking of Owsley, Jake Owsley. Perhaps you'll understand a little better further on along the right of way. Elbow Bend, were it not for the insurmountable obstacles that Dame Nature had seen fit to place there, the bed of the glacier river on one side and a sheer rock base of mountain on the other, would have been a black mark against the record of the engineering corps who built the station. Speaking generally, it is not good railroad practice to put a station on a curve, when it can be helped. Elbow Bend, the whole of it, main line and siding, made a curve, that's how it got its name, and yet, in a way, it wasn't the curve that was to blame, though, too, in a way, it was. Owsley had a patched eye that night from a bit of steel that had got into it in the afternoon, nothing much, but a patch on it to keep the cold and the sweep of the wind out. It was the eastbound run, and to make up for the loss of time a slow order over new construction work back a dozen miles or so had cost him, the 1601 was hitting a pretty fast clip as he whistled for elbow bend. Owsley checked just a little as he nosed the curve. The Imperial Limited made no stop at Elbow Bend. And then, as the 1601 sort of got her footing, so to speak, on the long bend, he opened her out again, and the storm of exhausts from her short, stubby stack went echoing through the mountains like the play of artillery. The light of the West End siding switch flashed by like a scintillating gem in the darkness. Brannigan, Owsley's fireman, pulled his door, shooting the cab and the heavens full of leaping fiery red, and swung to the tender for a shovelful of coal. Owsley, crouched a little forward in his seat, his body braced against the cant of the mogul on the curve, was feeling the throttle with a careful hand, and he peered ahead through the cab glass. Came the station lights, the black bulk of a locomotive cascading steam from her safety on the siding, and then the thundering reverberation as the 1601 began to sweep past a long curving line of boxes, flats, and gondolas, the end of which Owsley could not see for the curve. Owsley relaxed a little. That was right. Extra number 49 West was to cross him at Elbow Bend, and she was on the siding as she should be. His headlight, streaming out at a tangent to the curve, played its way kaleidoscopically along the sides of the string of freights, now edging the roof of a box-car, now opening a hole to the gray rock of the cut when a flat or two intervened, and then, sudden, quick as doom, with a yell from his fireman ringing in his ears, Owsley, his jaws clamping like a steel trap, flung his arm forward, jamming the throttle shut, while with the other hand he grabbed at the air. Owsley had seen it, too, as quick as Brannigan, a figure, arms waving frantically, for a fleeting second strangely silhouetted in the dancing headlights glare on the roof of one of the box-cars. A wild shout from the man, fluttering, indistinguishable, reached them as they roared by, then the grind and scream of brake shoes as the air went on, the answering shudder vibrating through the cab of the big racer, the meeting clash of buffer plates echoing down the length of the train behind, and a queer obstructing blackness dead ahead ere the headlight, tardy in its sweep, could point the way. But Owsley knew now, too late. Brannigan screamed in his ear, "'She ain't in the clear!' he screamed. "'It's a swipe! She ain't in the clear!' He screamed again and took a flying leap through the offside gangway. Owsley never turned his head, only held there, grim-faced, tight-lipped, facing what was to come, facing it with a clear head, quick brain, doing what he could to lessen the disaster, for forty years had schooled him to face emergency, 
Owsley for forty years with his record until that moment, as clean and unsmirched as the day he started as a kid calling train crews back in the little division town on the pen in the Far East. Strange it should come to Owsley, the one man of all you'd never think it would. It's hard to understand the running orders of the great trainmaster sometimes, isn't it? And sometimes it doesn't help much to realize that we never will understand this side of the great divide does it? The headlight caught it now, seemed to gloat upon it in a flood of blazing, insolent light, the rear cars of the freight crawling frantically from the main line to the siding, then the pitiful yellow from the cupola of the caboose, the light from below filtering up through the windows. It seared into Owsley's brain lightning quick, but vivid in every detail in a horrible, fascinating way. It was a second, the fraction of a second, since Brannigan had jumped. It might have been an hour. The front of the caboose seemed to leap suddenly at the 1601, seemed to rise up in the air and hurl itself at the straining engine as though in impotent fury at unwarranted attack. There was a terrific crash, the groan and rend of timber, the sickening grind and crunch as the van went to matchwood, the debris hurtling along the running boards, shattering the cab glass in flying splinters, and Owsley dropped where he stood like a log and the pony truck caught the tongue of the open switch, and with a vicious, nasty lurch that 1601 wrenched herself loose from her string of coaches, staggered like a lost and drunken soul a few yards along the ties, and turned turtle in the ditch. It was a bad spill, but it might have been worse, a great deal worse. A boxcar in the van for the junk heap, and the 1601 for the shops to repair fractures, and nobody hurt, except Owsley but they couldn't make head or tail of the cause of it. Everybody went on the carpet for it, and still it was a mystery. The main line was clear at the west end of the siding, and the switch was right, everybody was agreed on that, and it showed that way on the face of it, and that was as it should have been. The operator at Elbow Bend swore that he had shown his red, and that it was showing when the limited swept by. He said he knew it was going to be a close shave whether the freight, a little late, and crowding the Limited's running time, would be clear of the main line without delaying the express, and he had shown his red before even he had heard her whistle. His red was showing. The engine crew and the train crew of extra number 49 West backed the operator up. The red was showing. Brannigan, the fireman, didn't count as a witness. The only light he'd seen at all was the West End switch light. The curve had hidden anything ahead until after he'd pulled his door and turned to the tender for coal, and by then they were past the station. And Owsley, pretty badly smashed up and in bed down in Mrs. McCann's short-order house, talked kind of queer when he got around to where he could talk at all. They asked him what color light the station semaphore was showing, and Owsley said, White. White as the moon. That's what he said. White as the moon and they weren't quite sure he understood what they were driving at. For a week, that's all they could make out of it, and then with Regan scratching his head over it one day in confab with Carleton, the superintendent, it came more by chance than anything else. Blamed if I know what to make of it, he growled. Ordinary, six men's words would be the end of it. "'But Owsley's the best man that ever latched a throttle in our cabs, "'and for twenty years his record's cleaner than a baby's. 
what he says now don't count because he ain't right again yet but what you can't get away from is the fact that owsley's not the man to have slipped the signal either the six of them are doing him cold to save their own skins or or there's something queer about it carleton royal carleton in his grave quiet way shook his head we've been trying hard enough to get to the bottom of it tommy he said i wish to the lord we could i don't think the men are lying they tell a pretty straight story i've been wondering about that patch owsley had on his eye and what's that got to do with it cut in the blunt little master mechanic who made no bones about his fondness for the engineer he isn't blind in the other is he carleton stared at the master mechanic for a moment pulling ruminatively at his briar then they were in the super's office at the time his fist came down with a sudden bang upon the desk i believe you've got it tommy he exclaimed believe i've got it echoed regan and his hand halfway to his mouth with his plug of chewing stopped in mid-air got what i said he wasn't blind in the other and neither is he you know that as well as i do wait said carleton it's very rare i know but it seems to me i've heard of it wait a minute tommy he was leaning over from his chair and twirling the little revolving bookcase beside the desk as he spoke not a large library it was carleton's just a few technical books and his cherished britannica he pulled out a volume of the encyclopedia, laid it upon the desk, and began to turn the leaves. "'Yes, here it is,' he said after a moment. "'Listen,' and he commenced to read rapidly. "'The most common form of Daltonism—that's colorblindness, you know, Tommy—depends on the absence of the red sense. Great additions to our knowledge of this subject, if only in confirmation of results already deduced from theory, have been obtained in the last few years by Holmgren.' who has experimented on two persons, each of whom was found to have one colorblind eye, the other being nearly normal. Colorblind, sputtered the master mechanic. In one eye, said Carleton, sort of as though he was turning a problem over in his mind. That would account for, for it all, Tommy. As far as I know, one doesn't go colorblind, one is born that way. And if this is what's at the bottom of it, Owsley's been color-blind all his life in one eye, and probably didn't know what was the matter. That would account for his passing the tests, and would account for what happened at Elbow Bend. It was the patch that did it. You remember what he said? The light was white as the moon. And he's out, stormed Regan. Out for keeps after forty years. Say, do you know what this'll mean to Owsley? do you do, do you it'll be hell for him carleton he thinks more of his engine than a woman does of her child carleton closed the volume and replaced it mechanically in the bookcase regan's teeth met in his plug and jerked savagely at the tobacco i wish to blazes you hadn't read that he muttered fiercely what's to be done now i'm afraid there's only one thing to be done carleton answered gravely sentiment doesn't let us out there's too many lives at stake every time he takes out an engine. He'll have to try the color test with a patch over the same eye he had on that night. Perhaps, after all, I'm wrong, and— He's out, said the master mechanic gruffly. He's out. I don't need any test to know that now. That's what's the matter, and no other thing on earth. It's rough, damn rough, ain't it, after forty years? and Regan, with a short laugh, strode to the window and stood staring out at the choked railroad yards below him. And Regan was right. 
Three weeks later, when he got out of bed, Owsley took the color test under the queerest conditions that ever a railroad man took it, with his right eye bandaged, and failed utterly. But Owsley didn't quite seem to understand, and little Dr. McTurk, the company surgeon, was badly worried and had been all along. Owsley was a long way from being the same Owsley he was before the accident. Not physically. That way he was shaping up pretty well, but his head seemed to bother him. He seemed to have lost his grip on a whole lot of things. They gave him the test, more to settle the point in their own minds, but they knew before they gave it to him that it wasn't much use as far as he was concerned one way or the other. There was more than a mere matter of color wrong with Owsley now. And maybe that was the kindest thing that could have happened to him. Maybe it made it easier for him, since the colors barred him anyway from ever pulling a throttle again, not to understand. They tried to tell him he hadn't passed the color test. Regan tried to tell him in a clumsy, big-hearted way, breaking it as easy as he could, and Owsley laughed as though he were pleased. Just laughed, and, and with a glance at the clock and a jerky pull at his watch for comparison, a way he had of doing, walked out of Riley's, the trainmaster's office, and started across the tracks for the roundhouse. Owsley's head wasn't working right. It was as though the mechanism was running down, the memory kind of tapering off. But the 1601, his engine, stuck. And it was train time when he walked out of Riley's office that afternoon, the first afternoon he'd been out of bed in Mrs. McCann's motherly hands since the night at Elbow Bend. Perhaps you'll smile a little tolerantly at this, and perhaps you'll say the story's cooked. Well, perhaps. If you think that way about it, you'll probably smile more broadly still, and with the same grounds for a smile before we make division and sign the train register at the end of the run. Anyway, that afternoon, as Owsley, out for the first time, walked a little shakily across the turntable and through the big engine doors into the roundhouse, the 1601 was out for the first time herself from the repair shops, and for the first time since the accident was standing on the pit, blowing from a full head of steam and ready to move out and couple on for the mountain run west as soon as the Imperial Limited came in off the Prairie Division from the east. Is it a coincidence to smile at? Yes? Well, then there is more of the same humor to come. They tell the story on the Hill Division this way, those hard, grimy-handed men of the Rockies, in the cab, in the caboose, in the smoker, if you get intimate enough with the conductor or brakeman, in the roundhouse and in the section shanty, but they never smile themselves when they tell it. Paxley, big as two of Owsley, promoted from a local passenger run, had been given the Imperial and the 1601. He was standing by the front end, chatting with Clara Hugh, the Turner, as Owsley came in. Owsley didn't appear to notice either of the men, didn't answer either of them as they greeted him cheerily. His face, that had grown white from his illness, was tinged a little red with excitement, and his eyes seemed trying to take in every single detail of the big mountain racer all at once. He walked along to the gangway, his shoulders sort of bracing further back all the time, and then with the old-time swing he disappeared into the cab. He was out again in a minute with a long-spouted oil can, and just as he always did, started in for an oil around. Paxley and Clarahue looked at each other, 
and Paxley sort of fumbled aimlessly with the peak of his cap, while Clarahue couldn't seem to get the straps of his overalls adjusted comfortably. Brannigan, Owsley's old fireman, joined them from the other side of the engine. None of them spoke. Owsley went on oiling, making the round slowly, carefully, head and shoulders hidden completely at times as he leaned in over the rod, poking at the motion gear. And Regan, who had followed Owsley, coming in, got the thing in a glance and swore fiercely deep down in his throat. Not much to choke strong men up and throw them into the dead center? Well, perhaps not. Just a railroad man for forty years, just an engineer, and the best of them all, out. Owsley finished his round, and instead of climbing into the cab through the opposite gangway, came back to the front end and halted before Jim Clarahue. "'I see you got that injector valve packed at last,' said he approvingly. "'She looks cleaner under the guard plates than I've seen her for a long time, too. "'Give me the table, Jim.' None of them answered. Regan said afterward that he felt as though there'd been a head-on smash somewhere inside of him. But Owsley didn't seem to expect any answer. He went on down the side of the locomotive, went in through the gangway, and the next instant the steam came purring into the cylinders, just warming her up for a moment, as Owsley always did before he moved out of the roundhouse. It was Clara Hugh, then, who spoke, with a kind of catchy jerk. Ah, she's, uh, she's stiff from the shops. He, he's strong enough to hold her on the table. Regan looked at Paxley and tugged at his scraggly little brown mustache. "'He'll have to get him out of there, Bob,' he said gruffly to hide his emotion. "'Get him out, gently.' The steam was coming now into the cylinders with a more businesslike rush, and Paxley jumped for the cab. As he climbed in, Brannigan followed, and in a sort of helpless way hung in the gangway behind him. Owsley was standing up, his hand on the throttle, and evidently puzzled a little at the stiffness of the reversing lever that refused to budge on the segment with what strength he had in one hand to give it. Paxley reached over and tried to loosen Owsley's hand on the throttle. "'Let me take her, Jake,' he said. Owsley stared at him for a moment in mingled perplexity and irritation. "'What in blazes would I let you take her for?' he snapped suddenly, and attempted to shoulder Paxley aside. "'Get out of here, and mind your own business. Get out!' He snatched his wrist away from Paxley's fingers and gave a jerk at the throttle, and the 1601 began to move. The table wasn't set, and Paxley had no time for hesitation. More roughly than he had any wish to do it, he brushed Owsley's hand from the throttle and latched the throttle shut. And then, quick as a cat, Owsley was on him. It wasn't much of a fight, hardly a fight at all. Owsley, from three weeks on his back, was dropping weak, but Owsley snatched up a spanner that was lying on the seat and smashed Paxley with it between the eyes. Paxley was a big man physically, and a bigger man still where it counts most and doesn't show. With the blood streaming down his face and half-blinded, regardless of the blows that Owsley kept trying to rain upon him, he picked the engineer up in his arms like a baby, and, with Brannigan dropping off the gangway and helping, got Owsley to the ground. End of chapter 2, part 1